Hello, and welcome to Two Friends Talk History. My name is Ophia, and I'm a public historian fascinated by the exploration of history from researchers, practitioners, academics, and more. With so many interesting things to learn about the past, I'm so glad you're joining me on this journey. With each episode, I invite a guest to discuss aspects of history that they're involved with or curious about and why it matters in a section called So What? Thank you to members who have already joined my Patreon at patreon.com slash oculartist. Your support keeps this podcast going and ad-free. All right, let's get to it. Today, I am recording a special episode in person at the British School of Athens, where I'm joined by new friend to the pod, the fantastic Dr. Yorgos Muratiris. A huge welcome to two friends, Yorgos. Thank you very much, Sophia. It's really good to see you again and have a chat to talk about this. Excellent. Yorgos had recently completed his PhD at the University of St. Andrews, where his research focus was in ancient athletics, the gymnasium and education, and the political culture of the Greek city. Yorgos is an expert in Greek epigraphy, for listeners who may not know, the study of inscribed stones from Greek antiquity. Most of his research examines the styles of athletic self-representation in inscriptions from the Hellenistic period into the imperial period. His doctoral thesis and publications on epigrams and coming out in 2023, uh, Agonistic Inscriptions, 2021, so that's recently come out. And he explored how different kinds of inscriptions portrayed honorees in different ways, depending on their socio-political context, which is the more nuanced way to do it. So that's excellent. Uh, He is currently working on a new project called Athletics Impedia, where he will research the role of monuments in preserving, negotiating, and distributing knowledge about Hellenic culture and civic education. As he sits across from me right now, Yorgos has taken up a post at the British School of Athens as the assistant director. So congratulations on this amazing opportunity. Thank you very much. Yeah. (laughs) Listeners will be familiar with the British School of Athens from the last episode where I discussed the Institute and some of the exciting public engagement that they're working on with director, Professor Rebecca Sweetman. I am thrilled to be able to return. I thought it might be fun to throw my mic in my rucksack and do some interviews while on the road. All right, let's jump in. Yorgos, your forthcoming publication on honor and athletics in the Hellenistic polis sounds really interesting. How are you approaching the research for this topic? What types of materials and evidence can you extract from either the archaeological record, literary record, to put this picture together? Because it seems like a very complicated question. Yes, uh, and the answer is even more complicated. And as I'm sure everyone says, there is a long story behind it. (laughs) That has to do a little bit with the way I approached the epigraphic record, all the inscriptions, inscribed texts uh, so far in my during my thesis. And it was how people like to show themselves, portray mm-hmm. themselves. And what does that tell us about the many roles that they played in their societies? And at the same time, there's a, the study of ancient athletics is permeated by a very old aristocratic, mm. maybe it's the right word, mentality that likes to see paid athletes who get a lot of rewards and money as professional athletes, while the other category, the amateur athletes, are those who do it for the sake of sport, who don't mm. really need the money. But there is a social division there that... First of all, it's completely unfounded based on ancient athletics. Interesting. And, um, and that's what I wanted to show in this research because a lot of the, the argument behind this social division that especially 20th century, let's say, British aristocracy really liked to put forward was that the amateur athlete was the best athlete. And in antiquity, all athletes were amateur. They didn't like competing for the money. They didn't like... They knew the rewards, even though they got some. And after a point, usually they like to think that is 
after Alexander the Great, after the Hellenistic period, when there's a big pile of mess there, they we have this sense of decay. Oh, of so course. after that, athletics kind of became more professional. Then you have gladiators, and then it all went to uh, yeah, Shit. Southland. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> that old classic Enlightenment decay theory, right? Yes. Uh, so the, this was the argument that athletics used to be more pure and money free but then it became stained by paid professionals who really didn't get the the gist of it and by looking at rewards i i wanted to show that the rewards that we see in the evidence that i studied i studied mostly inscriptions and uh literature these rewards have to do more with the context of the celebration of victory and the relationship that the person who erected the monument wanted to project rather than the actual sociopolitical background of the person, of the athlete in that case. So, for example, when a city erected a monument, they wanted to emphasize that the prize that the athlete got was a reward for his it's mostly his at that time, contribution to the city. So they benefited their community, they benefited their city, and the city rewarded them. On the other hand, if an athlete would erect a monument, maybe he would like to emphasize more on his family and his heritage or his role in the community or his role as an athlete. So he would emphasize other kinds of rewards. So what I, I'd like, I think, thing I saw uh, with that research was that we shouldn't look into the kind of reward to find evidence uh, for aristocratic athletes or paid professionals. So they were both all the time and depending on the context, they projected one persona or the other. It's interesting when the polis is the one giving the award, of course, they're going to congratulate themselves. Like, he's our boy. He came from here. Or he's playing for us if he's not from there locally. Whereas, of course, and it makes perfect sense when the athlete themselves can erect the monument, what's most relevant to them? Well, maybe honoring their family. Okay, well, very interesting. So for these athletes, was the achievement of honor an internal or external thing? Was it like a public parade? Was there something that they carried with them in town how good was it to win so it was definitely an integral part of their identity after victory was achieved of course because for every victor we know there are tens of athletes that we have zero clue about yeah. and that can be shown from inscriptions for example i'll be talking mostly about inscriptions because that's what i studied the most <laughs> that's what i uh, but we can see inscriptions for example a city rewarding a benefactor for something completely irrelevant with athletics mm. But when they presented that person, they would often give a few information about them. For example, uh, specific titles that had to do with their role in the city, perhaps an office that they held. Very often we see among official titles, civic titles, again, completely unrelated with athletics, we see athletic titles as well. Hmm. So, for example, a sacred victor, uh, which meant that uh, that person won a sacred contest, like the Olympic Games were. So we can tell that they like to carry that mm-hmm. as a political capital, perhaps, that they could cash at some point or another, yeah. or it was just their highlight. Maybe yeah. they never let anyone forget. Like uh, peaking in high school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> were, were the awards given different from different city-states? Like if you won it in the Nemean Games or something, did you get something quite different as a winner than you might at the, I'm trying to think of something that's, not quite so embedded with like religious connotation, but all of them. Yeah, more like local sports. Yes. 
So yes, there were a, a lot of awards and not all of the awards were given in all circumstances. And the biggest division we have, which is not the best division, but I'm not going to go into detail for that because it's, there are a lot of nuances in what I'm going to say. So the biggest division is the crown games, as they like to call them, and the monetary games. And these are, of course, translations of ancient terms. They were characterized as such based on their words. For example, in crown games, you would win a crown. In the Nemean Games, in the Olympic yes. Festival, in the Delphic Games, you would win a crown. So there were crown games or sacred games. But there were other kinds of contests that they were called monetary contests or talentiae, as it was the, the ancient term, which you would get a prize, a cash prize. Nice. So this is a very big division. Yeah. But we know now that in both cases, people got some kind of monetary reward or could have gotten some kind of monetary reward or a crown. And, uh, so it's sort of flexible a little bit. Yes, it was very flexible and it was not always the same in every case. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of awards based on various kinds of achievements. For example, you would win the Olympic Games and you would get an X award. For example, you would get the honor of parading as you go into the city. You would get the honor of dining for life, for life at the city's expense. But if you win again, you had to get something perhaps extra yeah. so you might get a better monument or perhaps an honorary position for your already erected monument, an extra crown made of some precious metal, for example. So there was a lot of politics behind it. And there were tools of negotiation sometimes, I think, that you were. So crowns. You had me at crowns. Mm-hmm. I've got to circle back to that. Am I mistaken in believing that the crowns weren't necessarily bejeweled golden crowns these could be literal laurel leaves or they could be plant crowns they were literally plant crowns disappointing yeah. yes <laughs> <laughs> i mean especially if it rots away yeah. and then you get a you win the olympics you get a crown made of olive and it's gone rot, the next year it's gone in the next <laughs> best or some steps accidentally so. <laughs> yeah because whenever i've done fieldwork or, or museums especially in northern greece you see so many gorgeous golden crowns that have been preserved from funerary contexts so that's obviously very different and I'm like, oh, these are gorgeous. But of course, it's like, this is not what they got. <laughs> Usually crowns in, in precious metals, gold crowns, for example, were not meant for athletes. Maybe for a king or a big benefactor. Yeah. There were different kinds of gifts. Definitely not for athletes. For athletes, their crown could have been immortalized through stone in, in the sense that it was either commemorated mm-hmm. in written word or it was a relief. Yeah. For example, many monuments have like a crown leaves on them uh, sculpted yeah i think i saw a few at delos there's a whole large stone with i mean 30 different reads inscribed on it so and that's a good way for posterity so now can we talk about the gymnasia i think this is one of those areas that people hear something titillating every now and then when you're in school or on the media where it's like naked and oil and whatever i think people might appreciate like a brief walkthrough about what you actually could expect to see, smell, uh, hear, or or just experience if you were to go in a Hellenistic gymnasium? So I think first thing that comes to mind when you talk about the gymnasium is physical exercise in the nude, no clothes, and that's it. Okay. And then you get other kinds of activities there, like training in music, you get uh, lectures, lessons, fighting lessons, all kinds of training physical and intellectual training and so the best way to characterize a gymnasium is 
training to be a citizen. Nice. That's good. And depending on what that means in its context, yeah. you would get the accordingly a sort of the kind of training that the ideal citizen in theory would get. And that definitely included physical training and military training, as well, especially at the age of the FIBs, which is an age category. And I would say definitely various intellectual lessons from music to singing, for example, playing an instrument, to philosophy, to rhetoric, all kinds of... It's uh, really cool. But it, there, there is not one very strict program that all, all gymnasia yeah. use. So that, that depended a lot on its on local culture, some local needs, for example, cities in the margin, which were invaded often, might have had more military training than perhaps a city that was at the heart of a Hellenistic kingdom yeah. and, or the Roman Empire was almost never faded in a period of a few decades yeah. or, or so. Yeah, it's a tricky answer. <laughs> no, no, no. And it, it makes sense, but it's like... You, you, all concepts are tricky, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the classic academic answer where you're like, okay, yeah, well, I'll exactly. say this, but you have to understand it's more nuanced than that. But of course, you're absolutely right. Citizen training for a Spartan is going to look super different than an Athenian and somebody from Argos or Corinth. It's actually kind of neat to think about it. If you are looking into the individual cities themselves, then it's going to be similar, but not the same. And that's also a really cool resource for like, I hadn't really considered it like that, but what a good resource for young men young citizen men to become the grownups they're meant to be like you get all these different outlets for your your physical energy you can really take in so many different ideas all at once that's probably very good for society yeah so there were certain <laughs> overarching values and goals that pretty much every gymnasium in a greek city greek style had like uh, a focus on virtue and yeah. how one is prepared for virtue whatever that meant in its context Definitely included a lot of things, but I would say that's a totally personal view <laughs> that it would be the best way to prepare oneself to be able to act as a citizen mm -hmm. in public life, whether that is as a soldier, as a benefactor, as a city official, as a participant in the decision making, whatever that means. So, let's say intellectual and physical fitness to become a citizen. That's really cool. I'm, I'm here for it. That's interesting. And the physical fitness part is an interesting follow-up based on the, the sculptures that survive and are brought down over time to us. You know, there's this belief in the emphasis of the body, beautiful culture of antiquity, but it sounds like it was a lot deeper than that. Like it was a, you know, was there a spiritual or philosophical element embedded within the physical ideal? Yes, I, I certainly think so. And this is something I'm working at the moment uh, with my mentor and good friend, Heather Reed. Mm -hmm. She's a, a scholar uh, of philosophy, of ancient athletics. And my project generally now tries to see how monuments set up for or by athletes try to project certain views about mm -hmm. what the role of athletics in city life, in education is, or should have been. So there was definitely a lot more than physical mm -hmm. uh, element uh, there. And we must never forget, I mean, this is philosophy, and we tend to separate philosophy from... Uh, everything else. <laughs> yes, from everything else, basically, as something entirely artificial and entirely theoretical. But uh, ancient thinking, I mean, presuppose that the movement of the body 
depending on the soul and it reflected the soul so a well taking care of body reflected a well taking care of soul so there's definitely a physical element and in that sense i think we shouldn't ignore the fact that a lot of monuments for athletes not specific athletes named athletes but more mm -hmm. abstract athletes are almost identical with monuments for heroes yeah. or gods so there is a certainly a philosophical background in this and this is what i want to explore from now on it's really cool my, uh, research so so actually yeah, you're just segueing me perfectly into always my next question so props to you and it was very intensive <laughs> not <laughs> So one of the things for me that I find really interesting is sometimes the deities that I look at, the Greco-Roman Egyptian deities, they show up in, in gymnasia and bath complexes and things. So why might images of deities be included within a gymnasia? Like, are they good luck or are they, is it more like an active religious thing? You know, maybe you could do a sacrifice and then you work out. Like, how do they interact with the athletes? So again, like philosophy, sometimes it's very easy to separate religion from everyday life. So it's very easy to say a monument that depicts a, some sort of deity is one thing and mm. everyday life, political life is another. But we tend to forget that almost all aspects of ancient Greek and Greco-Roman life were permitted by ritual. Yeah. And that's, athletics is no different. So I think there were a lot of rituals, a lot of offerings that took place in gymnasia. And depending on the the trainees and their background, cultural or political, or the place that the gymnasium is found, we see various kinds of deities. There are specific deities that uh, are associated with the gymnasium, for example, Heracles or Hermes. Yeah. But uh, you can find all kinds of other monuments as well, even Roman emperors or kings, uh, local benefactors. But I think to go back to your deity, statue, or evidence, archaeological evidence in gymnasia, I think it has to do with various kinds of rituals that took place in gymnasia. And I don't think it's that alien. I don't know about you. When I grew up and I went to school, we would always say a prayer before the school starts, yeah. which is not very different, I think, from doing an offering and then proceed to first in training, in gymnasium training. We sang Oh Canada in French. <laughs> Oh, okay. So national. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's that. one or the other. <laughs> but yeah, of course, I was only in first school. Yeah, but that was a kind of ritual. It like, is. Maybe not so religious. As, there's definitely. Uh, yeah, there's a there's a religious element to it, like minimal, but still. Um, yeah. So no, you're right, actually. It, it does sort of bring the community together in a way that's quite uniformed and uh, structured. So from the research you've done and the research you're going to do, is there any locations in particular that really spark your interest in terms of the athletic complexes? I'm just sort of thinking people might be unaware of, like, if you're interested in the topic and you wanted to see a really good example of this type of building complex or maybe not necessarily a famous one, but an interesting one. Is there any places that you find are particularly interesting to you? Yes. So I'll talk about Greece, let's say geographically modern day Greece, because that's what I know best. I know there are massive and spectacular kinds of sites in modern-day Turkey, in Asia Minor, in Ephesus, for example, in Aphrodisias. But I've never visited them, so I only know them by book. But I would say that if one wants to get a, a glimpse of the ancient, ancient gymnasium life and see a really good example of Hellenistic uh, gymnasium, I would say go to Messini. I was just going to say that. 
Yes. So that's the so obvious cool. is a really good example of a gymnasium. It has a palestra, it has a stadium, it has a gora very close. So it, I think it's a really good uh, representative example of, uh, if not all kinds of cities. A well-endowed city. Yes. <laughs> but there's a hidden gem, which most people have, for some reason, ignored. And this is Amphipolis, I would mm. say, in the north. So if you want to take another look at a, another gymnasium, I think there's a lot more work to be done there in mm. terms of excavation. But I think it's a really good example of an ancient gymnasium. Nice. So I would say definitely if, you, if one gets the chance to visit people, definitely go there and explore. A few years back, I was doing some field work for Egyptian call in Mycenae and, and I had no real experience with the place before and just walking around down to the racetrack area. It's just so spectacular like and just the landscape around it was just by myself i did run actually (laughs) (laughs) i rocked up and it was sunset and they were closing in about 45 minutes so i hustled but it was so incredibly beautiful and i think in terms of you're saying like you know religion and philosophy are all integrated within every part of daily life and antiquity but as well i feel like landscape is too and there's something incredibly engaging about the way that this whole city and uh at the very end of the racetrack there's the temple of i think athena or yeah there's a little temple right at the end and it's just like i don't know what headspace they would have had because i can't obviously imagine myself in their shoes but you can imagine winning at something like this is just a what a shot so yeah really cool place but yeah i'm fabulous good show all right so the last question and the one that keeps many academics up at night is the so what question. So what? So what do you think makes the study of honor in athletics interesting and relevant to modern audiences? I would say in most occasions, honor, because you focus specifically on honor, it can be a driving factor. Mm. And that can hide a lot of nuances because honor is not the same everywhere and for everyone. Mm -hmm. So in a way... If you want to see various kinds of mentalities in ancient life, because that's our uh, topic, I would say if you if you study honor and the pursuit of honor, you inevitably have to look into what honor is, why is it important, and what does that tell us about how, why people behave the way they did. And does looking into the impact of these ethical behaviors within athletics and the way that they are used to reinforce each other in a way is is this one of those like it's absent in the modern world or there should be more of it or we should just consider it differently as opposed to just a monetary exploration like how do you see it yes definitely and one of the driving factors behind my research now was a small idea i had at some point when i i found a very old poster that i had in my room when i was i don't know 10 it was for my favorite football team at that time so it was the entire thing and i was thinking okay kids grew up with posters in their walls about their famous athletes seniors actors artists whatever so they looked up to them and in a way maybe for some young children that informs their decisions Mm -hmm. and the way they would grow up and i would say okay how does this happen on a civic level when you have an ancient city which has a forest of statues and many of them are (laughs) for athletes and the way they talk about athletics and they project athletics in a way reinforces a certain attitude about life. How can a city, whether in past time or modern times, 
take advantage of that in a, in a good way and mm. say, okay, let's create good role models. Let's talk about sport today, for example, in a more healthy manner, not talk about fantastic, uh, I don't know, achievements and records and ridiculously massive uh, contracts. Yeah. But also let's talk about the role of athletics in so many aspects of life from gender equality to gender spectrum to philosophy social mobility yeah. ethnicity so, so many things i mean we could our, our role models could also so that i'm not saying get rid of all the impressive records because spectacular record might have drawn people in to, yeah. into athletics but there's also room for wider conversations about life fantastic well thank you Jorgos. Thank you. I'm thrilled that we had the opportunity to catch up given today is a hectic busy day here at the VSA. So you've crushed it. Thank you so much for coming on the show and letting me bug you in your office. I appreciate it. And uh, it's been a pleasure having you on Two Friends Talk History. The pleasure is all mine. It's nice to talk about. Thank you listeners for tuning in to the fantastic Yorgos Moratidis. So thank you to our listeners for tuning in to the fantastic Dr. Yorgos Moratidis. If you would like to find out more about the British School of Athens to apply to use their brilliant library or research resources, or perhaps even donate to this worthy institution, you can find out more on their website at bsa.ac.uk. I will include links in the show notes to connect you to the British School and Yorgos's academic publications. I'd like to make a special announcement in relation to the British School of Athens. They will be running a new course in January 2024 called Communicating Archaeology, Knowledge Exchange, Impact, and Public Engagement. This course will be aimed at postgraduate students and professionals looking to gain tangible experience communicating archaeology to public audiences. This is a brand new program with exciting seminars and speakers that include journalists, heritage practitioners, research staff, and the fabulous classicist and award-winning author, Natalie Haynes. And, very excitedly, Two Friends Talk History host, me! Surprise! So I'm super stoked and don't sleep on this. The deadline to apply is October 30th, 2023, and spaces will be filling up quickly. I'm going to link all the information for application and further resources in the show notes for today's episode. So thank you so much for tuning in. Hope to see you in Athens in January. Thank you to our listeners. I hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have not already done so, please rate and review Two Friends Talk History on Apple Podcasts. It takes just a second and helps people find the show. Don't forget to hit subscribe or follow on whatever platform you listen to so you never miss an episode. You can also follow the show on Instagram at Two Friends Talk History or my website www.archeoartist.com for more explorations of art, history, and the ancient world. I have launched merch on my website. You can find episode art from Two Friends Talk History and my ancient history-inspired art on tees, hoodies, and housewares and stationery, all of which are linked to on my online shop. See you soon with new friends on Two Friends. Thank you.